thank you for joining us for the study of God's Word today. Grab a Bible and listen carefully as God will be speaking to us through His Word today. And may the words of my mouth and the meditation of our hearts be pleasing in your sight, O Lord, our Rock and our Redeemer. Good morning. It's always good to be here to worship the Lord with his people. Abraham Lincoln once wrote and spoke these words. The American people are God's almost chosen people. Well, that was a compliment, actually. It was in no way meant to be an insult. It reflected what Lincoln came to believe about America. The question that we're going to raise today and look for an answer for from Scripture is, who are the people of God? Having said that, I invite you to turn to the book of Psalms, the 33rd Psalm, which we read to begin the time together. 33 verse 12 of the Psalms. And look at what the scripture says. Blessed is the nation whose God is the Lord, the people whom he has chosen for his own inheritance. Allow me to dissect and apply the various parts of this verse from Psalm 33. Blessed is the nation whose God is the Lord. When you and I think of nations, we think of looking at a map or a globe and we see the various countries which have boundaries around them and their government is sovereign over that piece of land. At the time of the writing of this psalm, nation meant something quite different. In fact, the word translated nation in Hebrew is the word that is used over and over again to describe people or people groups, tribes, if you were. And you know enough about ancient history, even up until the modern era, borders keep moving all the time, and even in our own world. With the conflict in Ukraine and between Russia and Ukraine, there's always the attempt on some bigger, stronger bully to come in and try to take over somebody else's land. And the boundaries of the nation changes. But the boundaries were not so finely defined in this particular time in history. We know the superpowers would gain momentum and finally they would rule the whole world as they knew it, at least. So when we look at this text of Scripture, we need to look at it from the eyes of the Hebrew who would have read it. Blessed is the people, let's just use that word as an insert, whose God is the Lord. Now that raises another question. Whose God is the Lord? Well, I thought God and Lord are the same being. And from our perspective as people who understand what the Bible says, our God is the Lord and our Lord is the God. However, when God sent the people of Israel after releasing them from over 400 years of slavery into the promised land, 
He was saying to them, don't adopt the teachings and the habits of those who inhabit that region because it will lead you astray is what he was getting at. And it will contaminate you because it will contaminate your view of me, God said. So let's think about some of the gods in the promised land. You know the name Baal or Baal. Baal was the fertility god of the Canaanite people. And there were various strains of Canaanites. There were Hittites and there were Amorites and there were Ammonites and Moabites and no telling how many more bites there were in that land. But all of them adhered to worshiping Baal. In the case of the Moabites, they called him Chemosh or Chemosh. But he was the same God, and he was the same God for good reason. He was really a demon. It was none other than the devil doing his dirty work to keep people in the dark as far as knowing who the one true God was. And God was concerned because this group of people who had been delivered from 400 years of bondage, remember, their understanding of God had been dimmed over four centuries, and they lived in Egypt, which had literally thousands of gods. But one of the leading gods was a god which was represented by a calf or a cow. And they were idols that were worshipped among the Egyptians. And so they were familiar. Remember when they had gotten away into the wilderness and Moses apparently had abandoned them for 40 days. Moses had been up on the mountain communing with the one true God, the Lord, Yahweh, Jehovah. And it was there that Yahweh gave him the Ten Commandments. And in the meantime, as he was on Mount Sinai, these people became restless and they became hungry for what they had experienced as slaves of all things in the nation of Egypt. And they said, make us a cow. And he said, okay, give me your gold. They had spoiled Egypt according to God's permission. They were able to ask Egyptians for stuff and the Egyptians were so eager to get them out of there because of the plagues which had come upon the nation, they gladly gave them gold. And what did Aaron do? Aaron the brother of Moses, his older brother, actually, he took those items, melted them down, and fashioned a calf. This represented the god known as Apis. And he was, in effect, the Baal, or the Baal, of Egypt because he was a fertility god. He was the one that was looked upon to supply good agricultural return, crops that were rich so the people could eat and not have famine. But also, by connection, his emphasis was on, as was Baal and all these other gods. Now I'm going to talk about a goddess in just a moment. Their interest was not only in fertility of the ground, but fertility in human relationships. So when they would come to worship in Canaan, all right, this is before the nation of Israel 
invaded Canaan. When they would come to worship, they would worship as what at places which are called the high places. And there were these high places, and they were high geographically because they believed the nearer they got to heaven, the more likely that Baal would be pleased. There were altars there. There were all kinds of things that would help them to worship these high places. God told the people when they went into the land to destroy the high places. And this was a refrain that was revisited over and over again. Destroy the high places. Some of the kings, the better kings of Judah, did exactly that. One in particular comes to mind, Hezekiah. Hezekiah was one who followed a, his father, was a wicked king of Judah, and he practiced for years the religion of the Canaanites. He put them together, blended them together with the, the commitment that God calls us to, to know Him and Him alone. Remember what is the first commandment of the ten? You shall have no gods other than me, the one true God. So the female counterpart to Baal was Asherah or Ashtoreth. You'll run across her name. And she was the consort of Baal, and she was worshipped too. I'll just mention one of the gods whose name shows up among the Canaanite gods, Molech or Moloch, depending on where you read about him, this god, so-called. And he was a god who required human sacrifice. One of the kings of Judah, whose name was Manasseh, he actually sacrificed some of his own children to Moloch. And you can see why God would say, don't have anything to do with the gods in that nation. Make sure, look at what it says, blessed is the nation whose God is Yahweh. And we know that our God is not one of a pantheon of gods. He's the one God. We know that. But there's always effort on the part of Satan to sort of worm his way in to get some of the attention to take people away from the one true God. In the book of 2 Timothy, thousand years plus since we read this when it was written, the book of Psalms around 1000 B.C., Paul writes to Timothy, he says, in the last days there will be terrible times. Men will be lovers of themselves, lovers of money, lovers of what? Pleasure. Isn't it interesting? Do we see these gods at work in our day? Absolutely. And we should not be surprised because who is behind all these false gods? Who is the instigator and the empower? It's none other than Satan himself and his minions. We need to understand that. So blessed is the nation whose God is the Lord. There's never been a time in the history of this nation when everybody wanted to bless the Lord. We know about the Mayflower. It's a great story. 
a story of a group of pilgrims who started their pilgrimage by leaving under persecution circumstances, leaving Great Britain, going across the channel to what was known as Holland then, we know it as the Netherlands, and there they found freedom of religion. They could practice their faith as they wished without being hounded by Charles I, the King of England, who put people to prison if they did not worship in the Anglican Church, the Church of England. They were led by a pastor by the name of John Robinson. And Pastor Robinson was a good shepherd to his people. The group that initially went there was somewhere in the neighborhood of about 120, and it grew. People heard about what was happening, the freedom that was being experienced. People in Great Britain did, and what did they do? They joined them. And then people who were of Dutch nationality, many of them came to know Jesus. Perhaps there were even people there who had come from other parts of Europe or other parts of the world to practice their religion without religious persecution. And the group grew. But the leadership with the Pastor Robinson at the helm, they began to pray and say, Lord, what do you want us to do? They became concerned because some of their children were adopting Dutch customs and they wanted to retain their own culture and they knew that was not going to be possible if they remained in Holland. So as they prayed, they sensed the Lord was telling them, go back to England, get outfitted to take your group to the colonies of New England. And so they did. Pastor Robinson could not go. He fell ill. He died not very long after the Mayflower set sail. It took 66 days for that former battleship. And it was not a big ship. Do you know how big it was? It was basically the dimensions of a large tennis court. I don't know much about tennis. I like watching it. I enjoyed watching Wimbledon last couple of weeks ago. But what I do know is it's not huge, is it? Center court at Wimbledon is a very, very important place to the sports world, but it's not very large. That's the square footage that 102 passengers, including children, and then the 25 crewmen, that was a packed house. The second level above the level that was above sea level, the second level is where the guns had been kept when that boat, the Mayflower, had served as a battleship. And the height from the floor to what was the level above was somewhere around five feet. It was not very high. Now, people were smaller in that day, shorter, but we can only expect that most of the adults had to bend over, and some of the real tall ones might have to got, get down on all fours and crawl around there. The kids had no problem. But they made it, finally, after 66 days, and they were blown off course. They had a vision to go to the colony of Virginia, and they ended up in New England. We know that story. As they were in the bay where they would land at Plymouth Rock. Have you ever been to Plymouth Rock? I've been there once, and it was rather underwhelming, to be honest with you, to look at. But in terms of its importance, it was very enthusiastic in my own heart to think this is where 
some of our spiritual forefathers and mothers came. In the harbor, they put together what they called the Mayflower Compact. Listen to it. In the name of God, amen. We, whose names are underwritten, having undertaken for the glory of God in the advancement of the Christian faith and the honor of king and country, a voyage to plant the first colony in the northern parts of Virginia, do by these presents solemnly and mutually in the presence of God and one another covenant and combine ourselves together into a civil body politic. A historian named David Manuel said this about the Mayflower Compact. This compact would become the cornerstone of American representative government. These people were committed Christians. They weren't the first British group who came across and established a colony. Jamestown preceded this Mayflower group by 13 years. Jamestown was initially settled in 1607, and Jamestown never had more than one pastor, and it was a larger group. In fact, between to give us, get a sense of the difference between the Mayflower number and the Jamestown number, Jamestown between 2019, excuse me, I'm only 400 years in the future, okay. It was 1619 and 1622. In that three-year interval, there were 3,200 inhabitants of Jamestown. That's a pretty good-sized town in that time in American history for sure. And 3,000 of them died. We don't know all the reasons. A lot of it was due to disease. A lot of it was due probably to killing each other because they were pagan-esque, to say the least. And so we know that that group, there was no real interest that we can find in any of the writings about their interest in God or seeing themselves on mission to be here for God. So we know that everyone who came here didn't have that heart. But we know the ones who did come, like the people on the Mayflower, there were others which followed, and we know many of those came with a heart for God. Paul Johnson, who is a British historian, I don't know if he's still living, his works are good. I've read more than this work. It's called A History of the American People. He talks about what was common in New England now. He said there was one book in almost every house. And when we think of a house, we need to think of a cabin that was very rustic. The one book was the Bible. And each member of the family would read the Bible, and there would be usually daily readings in these homes. Now, every one of those homes, I'm sure, did not have a Bible because not everyone who was there was a follower of the Lord Jesus Christ. They were not people of God. So I don't want to leave the wrong impression. I want to be true to history as we think about what Lincoln said. We're the almost chosen people of God. Who was those? What group was the group that was the chosen people of God? Who? Israel, right? The children of Abraham. 
So let's look one more time before I forget to finish this. It says the counsel, I mean, in verse 12 of 33, Psalm, blessed is the nation whose God is the Lord, the people whom he has chosen for his own inheritance. I want to take a look with you at the last phrase, for his own inheritance. The word translated inheritance in the Hebrew language is a word which means special treasure. Have you ever thought of yourself as a part of a special treasure? And it belongs to God. And it's made up of people whom He has chosen. That's what the Scripture says. We read from the book of Ephesians, chapter 2. If we'd read from the first chapter, we would read this. It says that, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who chose us in Christ before the creation of the world. And he's writing to a group that is predominantly non-Jewish. They're Gentiles. And then in chapter 2, I'm so grateful for Jesus' reading that. And I hope you, when someone gets up here and reads, I hope you're listening for the voice of God because the Bible is the voice of God. It's the Word of God. It talks about these Gentiles who predominated in the church at Ephesus, how they were not part of the commonwealth of Israel. They were, in effect, on the outside, left in the cold, looking in, wanting to know if there was a true God. But they were not yet invited in, and then they heard the gospel. Paul, who was, by his own description, a Jew of Jews, a, an Israelite of Israelites, a Pharisee of Pharisees. I mean, he was at the top of the food chain as far as being a descendant of Abraham and so forth. But was he a person of God before he met Jesus? No, he was not. Paul writes in the book of Romans chapter to verses 28 and 29. And I'm paraphrasing here, but I think I'll get the main emphasis of it. It says, He is not a Jew based on his circumcision. He is not a Jew only who is a true Jew outwardly, but a Jew inwardly. One has to be circumcised in the heart to be a true Jew. Now remember who it is writing this. The Apostle Paul, who later in the book said, if I could give my life for my fellow descendants of Abraham, for Jews, I would give my life for them. I would go to hell, really, is what he's saying, for them. Now he knew he couldn't, so we might say, that's no big deal. He's already illuminated the Romans, that once you come to know Jesus, nothing can separate you from the love of God that's in Christ Jesus. But I know he meant it. So he was not prejudiced toward Jews. He loved his people of origin. But he knew that in order for someone to become part of that, they had to know Jesus. There's only one way to heaven, regardless of your ethnicity. Regardless of your family tree, 
And that's through the person of Jesus Christ and the work of Jesus Christ. So important. And then Paul writes something that is mind-blowing. He talks about how God took people who were Gentiles and people who were Jews and made one man out of them. He calls it one new man. What in the world was Paul writing about? I think most of you would know. He was talking about the new man, Jesus Christ. So how are we Jesus Christ? Well, if I'm not mistaken, the Bible says, among other things, that a church is an expression of the body of Christ. And so what God did, He blended people from Abraham's line and people who weren't. And those people were brought together to be the one people of God. And both groups are chosen. And anybody who comes to know Jesus is chosen by God. We did not choose. Jesus said, you did not choose me, but I chose you. Now, we don't like that because we're so self-centered and we're so independent as Westerners and Americans to a certain extent that we want to do something that contributes to our salvation in terms of our coming into the family of God. And we can't. Why? Earlier in the book of Ephesians chapter 2, the Bible says, as for you, talking to the Ephesians, you were dead in your trespasses and sin. So, as we think about the people whom He has chosen for His own inheritance, we are chosen by God. Blessed God who would choose us to be His children. We commit our lives to Him. No doubt about that. I'm not saying we're just like automatons. We are awakened by the Spirit and we trust in Christ. He gives us eternal life. But this is God's way of salvation. And we love the Lord for saving us because we never would have gone on a search for Him by ourselves. The Bible says in the book of Romans, no one seeks God. No, not even one. Any inclination I have had in my life to seek the Lord was set in motion by the Spirit of God Himself. Read your Bible. Read the book of Romans. And read other parts of Scripture. We've already looked at Ephesians in a certain degree. So, I want to give you some examples beyond the Mayflower, beyond Jamestown, Got to find my way to my illustrations. And one is, and I, I really appreciate this, and we're going to jump forward to the first great awakening in America. It happened, and there are two main figures. There were many, many people whose names will never be known. That's beside the point. I like what a man said after he was introduced to a convocation of 3,000 pastors in Great Britain. And he was given this glorious introduction. And as he bowed his head and called the group to prayer before he opened the Bible and began to teach the Word of God, he said, Lord, we don't care who is second as long as you are first. It's not, we're not in some kind of contest to prove who is more spiritual. But this man, Jonathan Edwards, was used, you know, 
about if you haven't read the sermon Sinners in the Hands of an Angry God. And so those who took note of that, who were in the audience that day, when he gave the message, said he did what he always did. He had written the message out word for word. And when he would begin to read the text, he would read it in a monotone. He was not yelling or flailing around. And his eyes would be on the ceiling. So much for good etiquette when it comes to speaking to people about the Lord, right? So he gave this message. This was uncharacteristic of him to give such a message. He preached the whole counsel of God, but like me and everybody else, he was more inclined to teach about the love of God and the kindness of God and the mercy of God and all that. But it sparked a revival in his town in New England. It spread out. At that same time, there was a man who had come from Great Britain. His name was George Whitfield. Whitfield was a good friend of the Wesley brothers, John and Charles. You, we know Wesley's as being, especially John, as the one who was the founder and leader of the Methodist branch of Christianity. To my amazement, when I was preparing this message, I discovered that it was actually Whitfield who founded the church, and when he believed God was calling him to come over to the colonies to preach, he passed the torch to the Wesleys. Isn't that interesting? I know it's interesting to me. It's not to you, I'm sure. But you say, get on with the sermon, Pastor, and finish it, will you? Well, he came, and he had such a gift for evangelism. He was highly educated, graduate of Oxford University, Oxford and Cambridge being the leading universities, kind of like Princeton and Yale or Princeton Harvard, something like that. But what we know is that when he came to preach the gospel, he had such pathos. He had such passion when he would preach the gospel of Christ. Sometimes he would burst into tears. It was no fake tears, no crocodile tears. It was his heart breaking for the lost. Sometimes there would be almost 10,000 people to hear this man preach. Benjamin Franklin said every time that he was within walking distance of hearing this man speak, he would go, but he would always empty his pocket of all the money because what he had learned, if he kept money, he would give it away to him at the end of his preaching. But this man, according to one person's calculation, preached the gospel to 80% of the inhabitants in the New World. He traveled all up and down the seacoast. And he and Edwards and others were used to bring the first great awakening, which prepared the way for the revolution in a way. But then after the revolution ended, this is what we know. There was a man named Thomas Paine, who was a patriot, and he wrote prolifically, and among the things which he wrote was a book called The Age of Reason, and it was a critique in a negative way of the Bible and Christianity. And he influenced many young people especially. And 
also professors in the colleges and the universities in what we now know as the United States. And the result of that was when the Revolutionary War ended, almost it was like turning off a switch and turning on another. Because all these young men who had been fighting for the freedom of our nation, they ended up going to college, many of them, not all of them, the ones who could and had the educational level to make it there. And they had reinforced what they had been reading by pain through the faculty. And the result was that the universities were filled with atheists and agnostics among the students and, of course, the professors themselves. At a Virginia college known as Hampton, Sydney, and this was in 1788 now, there were three students, one Kerry Allen, who secretly embraced Jesus. He never would talk about Jesus because he didn't want the ridicule and the persecution which went along William Hill and lastly James Blythe. These men didn't know each other. They were there. Two of them were already believers. One of them, James Blythe, passed the one named William Hill who had found a book entitled Alarm to the Unconverted and he kept it safely locked in a, his place of belongings. And, but he, he was caught reading and this man, James Blythe, asked William Hill, what is that you're reading? He simply gave the title Alarm to the Unconverted. And the man, James Blythe, broke out in tears. He was under conviction because he knew he was not saved. He got saved. These men said, we've got to pray together. And so they decided on the, the, summer to the Saturday to follow, they would meet out in the woods, dense woods. They'd be safe. No one would see them. After that Saturday, they said, what are we afraid of? We don't need to be in the face of people who are antagonistic toward Jesus and the Bible and consequently us. But we don't have to go out there. And they met together and they were found out by some of their classmates. It was an all-male school. And so a riot almost broke out. And it was like they ganged those people, kind of like what we read when Paul was ganged in Ephesus by artisans who made idols of Artemis there and his business, their business was being ruined by the gospel. But nevertheless, the president got word of it. He came in and the whole student body was there and he heard the accusations against these men, heard their testimony, and listen to what is spoken about that in written word. The president's eyes filled with tears. After a short pause, he said, and has it come to this? He's being sarcastic. Is it possible? Some of my students are under religious impressions and determined to serve their Savior. And is it possible that there are such monster, <clears throat> monsters of iniquity, talking about these three in college, who dare set themselves against such things? In other words, he was saying to the other students who were so angry about this triad sharing the good news with one another. That God used those three guys going forward. A revival broke out in that school. 
And let me talk to the young people here today. And anything under 60 is young to me, so relax. <laughs> I'm talking about you who are college students, or still in high school, or graduate students, professional students in some field, law or medicine or whatever. Let me just say this to you. Listen to the Lord. God wants to use you in your environment. Do not be ashamed of Jesus and His words in this adulterous and sinful generation. You don't have to call people out. You just have to call them to Jesus Christ. The last time I checked, the power of God is the gospel for the salvation to all who believe. Preach Christ. Share Jesus. It's He who has the capacity to change the world. And He will do it through you if you will trust Him. Ask God to give you some friends in Christ. And you all band together remembering that when Jesus sent people out, He never sent them alone. He always sent them in pairs. And we need each other, do we not, as we share the gospel? It's true of all of us, no matter what age we are. God wants to use us. Can you imagine? 350 people probably put it together with early service, 500, maybe 600 people this weekend. If all of us caught fire and we said, Lord, I want to be part of the solution. I want to be part of the answer, Lord. Show me how I can be unashamed and unafraid and I can share the gospel so that you can use me to help others who do not know you yet to come to know you. There's no greater honor than to be tapped by God. Chosen. And remember what the Bible says in the book of 1 Corinthians about those who were chosen. Not many of you were wise. Not many of you were influential. Not many of you were of noble birth. But God chooses the foolish things of the world to confound the wise. Do you understand? God can't use a proud person to do anything except draw attention to himself or herself and implode. There are a lot of people who want to present themselves. And the reason we're afraid to witness in large part is we're afraid we're going to get rejected. Well, we're representing the King of kings and the Lord of lords. And He has promised He will be with us. He has not promised that we will not suffer for following. In fact, to the contrary, He says you will suffer. Blessed suffering. We don't need to be masochistic and want to be a hero or a heroine. We just need to follow Christ, right? The foundation of Israel, if the foundation are destroyed, what will the righteous do? Here's what we'll do. The foundation are the Word of God and prayer. The Word of God and prayer. When we read about the covenants that God made with Abraham, it was the Word of God. There was no written Word then. Abraham predates the Moses by, goodness, probably about 600 years according to most historians. There was no Bible, but the Spirit spoke to him. And God will use the Word of God in your life and my life and speak to us to use us to be tools in His hands 
We are part of the chosen people. He doesn't use superstars. He does in some cases. Thank God for some superstars. Athletes, not so many actors and actresses, but there are a few of them who are courageous enough to speak out, to follow the Lord. Politicians, thank God for Christian politicians. We're grateful for people who are elevated, but don't let that baffle you or make you feel like you're unqualified. Just love people in the name of Christ. He chose us. He made a covenant with us. But the Lord knew there would be a deterioration, at least a possibility of deterioration, in the commitment of these chosen people when they went into the land. We've already touched on that. But what we do know is that they did compromise. They intermarried with non-followers of God. And when you study the history of the kings of Judah in particular, what you see that very many of them, if not the small majority of them, they ended up marrying women outside of Abraham's line. People who were not the people of God. They married. They compromised. And they began to adopt the practices in religion. And they let the, the high places, which had been the places that the Canaanites had worshipped, be revitalized. And they did some of it in the name of Yahweh, but they mixed Baal into it, or Baal, these Canaanite gods, and they watered it down. God forbid that we as a church would allow the Word of God to be watered down. It's true. and it sets us free. Jesus is the one who is the subject of Scripture, and He wants us to trust the Holy Spirit to use the Word of God to bring people to faith. What a wonderful God we have. Going back to our own heritage as Americans, let me just say this. I got, I got some quotations that I wrote about years ago to the church in July. It's been nine years ago now, and I found it. And these are quotations that some of our presidents made about the Bible. Andrew Jackson, who was old hickory, and he was tough as nails. He was mean as a snake, too. He got saved late in life. But this is what he said. The Bible is the rock on which our republic rests. Abraham Lincoln, I've mentioned him already. The Bible is the best gift God has ever given to man, but for it we would not know right from wrong. Lincoln became a believer. I'm reading a book by a man named Elton Trueblood who was a, he was a Quaker professor, committed Christian, and he wrote this book about Lincoln, and he talks about how Lincoln, and he gives evidence in the writings of Lincoln, came to know Jesus as his Lord and Savior before he was assassinated and died. Woodrow Wilson, who was president during World War I, the son of a Presbyterian pastor, by the way. The Bible is the word of life. I beg that you will read it and find this out for yourself. Wouldn't you like a president of the United States who practiced reading the Bible and who said, I beg you that you will read and find this out 
for yourself. The Bible is the word of life. We need to not need someone in a high place to tell us that. We've got one in the highest play, place who says we are to trust God and read His Word. Ronald Reagan, inside the Bible's pages lie all the answers to all the problems man has known. I hope Americans will read and study the Bible. It is my firm belief that the enduring values presented in its pages have a great meaning for each of us and for our nation. Amen. Thank God. Let's think of the verses again. Two main verses. I wish we had another hour, but I know you're hungry. I want to get out of this. It's torture for some of you. So, let me just mention these two verses again. Let's start with 33.12 of Psalm. Good one to remember. Blessed is the nation whose God is the Lord. It begins with me and you. Let's not dilly-dally around about being under the Lordship of God. Let's not just talk a good game. Let's live it out. And live it out in sharing a positive witness for the Lord Jesus Christ. Blessed is the nation whose God is the Lord, the people whom He has chosen for His own inheritance. Thank You, Lord, for loving us enough to pay the price of your own son to buy us back from the clutches of sin and death. Thank you, Lord. And let's look at 11, Psalm 11, verse 3. If the foundations are destroyed, people are working overtime right now to destroy the foundations of the Word of God in prayer to discourage us who know Jesus, to try to guilt us into some corner because we believe what the Word of God says on any matter. And we hold fast to the Gospel and the person of Jesus. And we're going to be useful to the Lord. If the foundations are destroyed, what can the righteous do? This is what we can do. God says in 2 Chronicles chapter 7, we just usually quote verse 14. We need to read the context. This is what God says. If I shut up the heavens so that it does not rain, or I command the locusts to devour the land, or I send pestilence among my people, if my people... Now, who is a people of God, a person of God? Someone is trusted in God through Jesus Christ for forgiveness. If my people who are called by my name will do what? Humble themselves. How long has it been since you've humbled yourself before God? Got down on your knees and just said, Lord, I need you for everything. Lord, I know you say in your word in Micah, where you say, what do you desire of me but to do justly, to love mercy, and to walk humbly in your presence? If my people are called by my name, will humble themselves and pray. This is not now lay me down to sleep or even some mindless repetition of what we call the Lord's Prayer. It's really pray to the Lord. 
have intimacy with the Lord. If my people are called by my name, will humble themselves and pray and seek my face. Not asking Him to do stuff for you. 98% of most of our prayers is gimme, 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 gimme. God wants us to seek His face, not His hand, to work on our behalf. That will follow. And we will have a lot fewer wants if we do what the Word says. Seek His face. If my people are called by my name, will humble themselves and seek my face and turn from their wicked ways. Instead of always pointing at the wickedness of other people, what are we to do? We're to seek out the Lord's identifying wickedness in our lives that separates us from God. Are you doing that? If my people are called by my name, will humble themselves and pray and seek my face and turn from their wicked ways, then I will hear from heaven. And then I will forgive their sin. And this is lovely. You love America? Then... I will heal their land. The healing of America rests in the church of Jesus Christ. What a force God has here. In this body, just this body, this, this service, 300, 350 people who know and are gracious and people who are grateful to God for saving them. If God would just set us on fire, no telling what would happen. Pray for me and I will pray for you that that might happen. Let's pray. Oh, Lord, our Lord, how majestic is Your name in all the earth. We ask You, Lord, that we would be truly Your people. We would not be ashamed of You, Lord Jesus. We would love people in Your name. We would speak the truth in love. Lord, sometimes it's hard to speak the truth and swim upstream, but You give us the power for that. We ask You to help us to do it. Thank You for all who are here, Lord. Bless us. Fill us with Yourself. Make our church a place where people can find You in the body of believers who come here. They'll sense something different in us as we care for each other and love on them. Amen.